And the famous line we're going to be looking at is that famous verse, for such a time as this. Are we all familiar with that verse? For such a time as this. And so let's do a quick little recap. So first of all, Esther was a young Jewish woman who lived in Persia. She was raised by her older cousin Mordecai as her parents had both died. She is taken from her family to the palace of King Xerxes. She is selected as one of many beautiful young women of Persia to become the new queen because Vashti, the old queen, had been banished from the kingdom because of a disobedience to King Xerxes. And so here we see them having 12 months of beauty treatments in preparation to um, go before the king so he can select a new wife. Now, for somebody who's worked in the health and beauty industry for some time, I know that it wasn't all, you know, pampering and pleasure. It wasn't just all about facials and skincare and bathing in goat's milk. There would probably have been some quite painful beauty treatments because as women, sometimes the things we go through are quite painful. And, um, you know, they would have possibly have, you know, removed hair, which in the ancient world would have been like this sticky toffee, which they would have pasted on the skin and ripped the hairs out. So she was, would have been nice and smooth. If she would have had to have those nice angled eyebrows, they would have probably taken a little bit of thread and tied it up and pulled the little bits of hair out to give a nice shape to the eyebrows. I went to Israel some time ago and we went to the Dead Sea and we were bathing in this Dead Sea mud, which was like an exfoliator to make the skin nice and smooth and it had lots of minerals and things in and it's meant to be really good for you. So it was probably not all pleasant. And so I'm sure she would have gone through, you know, exercise and uh, some protocol and how to kind of, you know, conduct yourself and all of these things. So 12 months was probably not all pleasure. And so it was no fairy tale. The king was wealthy and powerful, but also prone to excess, especially when it came to, you know, the odd glass of wine or 25. And so he was given to drunkenness and making rash and foolish decisions. And last week, Adam covered two of the key characters in uh, the story. He covered Mordecai, who was Esther's cousin, who brought her up, and Haman, who was the king's right-hand man. And we saw how Haman had really bared a grudge against her cousin Mordecai, and so Haman plots to kill him, to, to have all of the Jews killed in the empire, a plot which the king obliviously goes along with. And this is where we are picking up our story today, and we find it in Esther chapter 4, verses 1 to 14. So here we are seeing Mordecai appealing to Esther for help. She's in the palace, she's been made queen, and so she is there. And so Mordecai learned what had happened, had been done. He tore his clothes, he put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the city, wailing loudly and bitterly for his kingdom, his all of his sort of relatives, his friends, all his people were going to be killed. And But he went only as far as the king's gate because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter it. In every province to which this edict and order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting, weeping and wailing. Many lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's eunuchs and female attendants came and told her about Mordecai, 
She was in great distress. She sent clothes for him to put on instead of this sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther summoned Havak, one of the king's eunuchs assigned to attend her, and ordered him to find out what was troubling Mordecai and why. So Havak went to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him, including the exact amount of money that Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation, which had been published in Susa, the city, so to show to Esther and explain it to her. And he told him to instruct her to go into the king's presence to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. Havak went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said, and then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, all of the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that they would be put to death unless the king extends the golden scepter to them and spares their lives." But 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. There's no way he's going to see me. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone will be, you know, saved. You alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and all of your father's family will perish. And who knows what you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Oh, gosh, quite stressful, isn't it, for Sunday morning? (laughs) Okay, so here we see Esther. She's living sort of... um, that there were two separate palaces, so she would have been with her sort of, you know, maidens and staff, and the king existed in his palace. And so it wasn't like, you know, they regularly saw each other or bumped into each other. And, it, you know, even just because she was queen didn't mean to say she could just go into the king's court and have a chat with him. It really was a lot of palace Persian protocol and very strict, especially with the way women, including the queen, would have been treated in those days. And here we can see, like, such a dilemma. She is, like, doomed if she doesn't and doomed if she does. And so Mordecai goes away and tells Esther all what is going on. But what a predicament. And so let's look at Esther's bravery. But first of all, let's look at why was Mordecai and why were many of the Jews in this, like, dress of sackcloth and ashes. Well, sackcloth was like a a coarse cloth made of goat's hair. It wouldn't have been very comfortable. It would have been very itchy and scratchy. And it was also like had attached to it like ashes from burnt wood. And it was a sign of mourning because the Jews were about to face their impending doom. And so it took Esther a lot of courage to go before the king. The palace rules dictated that if anyone went to see the king uninvited, they could be put to death. Appearing before the king was no little thing. To say the least, he was rash and unpredictable, was putting it mildly. So Esther could really have lost her life just by having the audacity to go and visit the king uninvited. It wasn't as simple as, can we have a little chat? Can we book a date night next Wednesday? Or can I just run something by you? It really was a big deal in those times. 
And so here we see Esther really exercising wisdom and planning, wise planning and wisdom. She didn't just like run into the situation impulsively, making matters potentially worse, but she kind of held back and she asked for Mordecai and her friends and her family and her maidens to fast. So it wasn't like she just rushed in. She had to like think about this, think of the timing. And obviously the fasting was what she was going to be going into with that sort of presence and protection of God. Now, it's really interesting that in the book of Esther, we don't hear the word God. We don't see, and God said, and God said, we don't see any of it. But we absolutely see like the providence of God moving in and through the pages and obviously in the characters, in the right people, at the right time, in the right places. And so we see this like sovereign move, the providence of God all over this story. And so it's amazing because if you think, if the Jews had been annihilated, none of us would be sat here today or watching online because of the Jewish lineage was that God was going to send his son, Jesus, to this earth for redemption and to save us all. And so how awesome is it that we are all connected to these stories, these characters, and these times because of God's plan. And so Esther was really brave and courageous. So let's continue the story. In Esther 5, verses 1 to 8, it says, On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the palace in front of the king's hall. The king was sitting on his royal throne in the hall facing the entrance. When he saw the queen Esther standing in the court, he was pleased with her and held out to her the gold scepter that was in his hand. Now, I just wonder, and it doesn't say, whether Esther had kind of like sent some of the attendants to kind of suss out what sort of mood the king was in, what sort of week he had been having, to sort of pick her moment wisely so that she wasn't kind of approaching him when he was like, you know, dealing with some big sort of mission and uh, military thing or having some sort of, you know, argument with somebody in the court. But I wonder if she was kind of just waiting for that right moment. And obviously the moment she picked, obviously ordained by God, was the right moment because he handed this golden scepter to her, which was a sign that he was pleased and that he wasn't going to, because there would have been, you know, sort of soldiers around with swords. And if that person hadn't been invited and the king did not wish to see them, they would have been gone. So then the king asked, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be given to you. So he was obviously in a good mood. This was a good day. She picked her moment wisely. If it pleases the king, replied Esther, let the king, together with Haman, come today to a banquet I have prepared for him. Bring Haman at once, the king said, so that we may go and do what Esther has asked. And so the king and Haman went to the banquet Esther had prepared. And as they were drinking wine, the king asked Esther again, Now, what is your petition? It will be given to you. And what is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be granted. He's obviously had another glass of wine because he's feeling very generous. Esther replied, My petition and my request is this. If the king regards me with favor and if it pleases the king to grant my position and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come tomorrow to the banquet I will prepare for them. Another banquet, another feast, another party. And then I will answer the king's question. Gosh, she's uh, really kind of uh, acting cool, isn't she? 
And so here we see them having this banquet together. Esther chooses her moment wisely. The king is in a good mood. He's been happy to see her. And phew, what a relief Esther must have felt. Okay, and it was, uh, so when you think about this golden scepter, this was like the palace protocol of the day, but obviously she must have been stood there with her heart absolutely pounding, like, is he going to see me? Isn't he going to see me? Is he going to see me? Isn't he going to see me? Am I going to lose my life today or am I going to live? And so that was so brave of her, wasn't it, to just stand before the king in all of her royal regalia and he must have clocked her and thought, ah, oh, that's my queen. And he handed this golden scepter to her and, she said, and it says that she touched the golden scepter and that was like like acknowledgement that the king would see the person and then the person was like allowed to speak or to bring their requests to the king. It's very interesting. Okay, okay, so what a relief for her and here we go. So meanwhile, the king can't sleep. So orders his attendants to bring the historical records of his kingdom to be read to him. Okay, so there's lots of things going on. It's like a game of chess, isn't there? There's this going on over here, there's this going on over here, and there's all these sort of people being entwined in their dealings and things that are going on behind the scenes. And so when he was being read these records of the sort of, uh, you know, Sousa or whatever was going on, he had obviously not realised or missed something really important that had happened. When Mordecai was sat at the city gate, he overheard two men plotting to assassinate the king. And so Mordecai's action stopped that from happening. And so the king realises, well, hasn't this man been like rewarded or thanked or acknowledged for that? And so here, meanwhile... <laughs> A few verses before, Haman is actually plotting to kill Mordecai and gets gallows built in his courtyard, 75 feet tall, because Mordecai wouldn't bow to him. And there was a historical unrest and history because he was an Agagite and they didn't like the Jews and one thing or the other. So he had it really in for Mordecai and the whole of the Jewish people. And so here we are, the king is like, all of a sudden can't sleep. He recognises that Mordecai hasn't been rewarded and thanked for saving his life. And meanwhile, Haman is planning to kill the same guy that the king is going to about to honour. And so the king asks the question. He says, who is in my court? And it just so happened that Haman was in the court about to ask for Mordecai's death. And so the king asks the questions, what should I do to honour a man who truly pleases me? Now Haman is thinking, wow, this is a great day. What a great day. First of all, I get a special invite to dine with the queen and the king on my own. Who aren't I special? And then I'm going to kill my arch enemy Mordecai and everything is set up for that. And now the king wants to honour me. I mean, who else would he want to honour? I'm his right hand man. Wonderful, what a great day. And so he thinks to himself, oh, now this, this is going, no, how would I want to be honoured? And so he thinks to himself of the things that he would like. And he relays this generous, elaborate, extravagant plan to the king. Excellent, the king says. And it was all about get the king's crown, get the king's robes, get the king's horse and be paraded in the courts and streets of Susa, being you know, told to the people, this is how the king honours the man that pleases the king. So he thought he was going to have be treated a bit like a king. And so he thinks to himself, 
and relays this off to the king. So the king says, hurry, that's a great idea, Haman. Go and get me my robe. Go and get the horse and do just as you have said for Mordecai the Jew. Oh, my goodness, can you imagine that sort of feeling, that lead balloon just dropping into the pit of his stomach, that sort of feeling of absolute disappointment and embarrassment and so he was totally humiliated and so he went about that and then it says he went home to his family and his friends and he was talking all about it and so he knew that there was going to be trouble ahead totally humiliated and so next we still have the queen's banquet so maybe there's something still to look forward to and that will cheer him up So in Esther chapter 7, it says, So the king and Haman went again to the queen's banquet, and as they were drinking wine on the second day, the king asked her, King, Queen Esther, what is your petition? It will be given to you. What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be granted. The queen answered, If I have found favor with you, your majesty, and if it pleases you, grant me my life. This is my petition. And spare my people. This is my request. For I and my people have been sold to be destroyed, killed and annihilated. If we had merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept quiet because no such distress would justify disturbing the king. So can't you see how important this is to me? Me and my people, he obviously didn't know that she was a Jew, was going to be killed. King Xerxes asked Queen Esther, who is he? Where is this man who was dared to do such a thing? Esther said, an adversary and an enemy, this vile Haman. I love that, this vile Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and queen. The king got up in a rage, left his wine and went into the palace garden, probably to just kind of process what he had just heard, to kind of figure out what his next move was going to be and to just take a breath and calm down a bit. But Haman, realizing that the king had already decided his fate, stayed behind to beg Queen Esther for his life. And just as the king returned from the palace garden to the banquet hall, Haman was accidentally falling on the couch where Esther was like reclining. And some commentators say that in Jewish folklore and tradition, God made an enemy just give Haman a little shove. So he accidentally fell on top of Esther just at that time as the king was coming in from the palace garden to make it look as if he was like going to assault her or something. And so... Will he even molest the queen in front of me while she is in with me in my own house? So that would have made him more enraged. More, he was going to obviously do something more, you know, deathly to him. And now he, this was confirmed. He really is horrible. And what is he doing? Will he even molest my queen? As soon as the word left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. And when a face was covered, because a person had been like uh, assigned to doom, a king would not look upon that face of a condemned person. And so they would have put this sort of, I don't know, you can imagine on the films, can't you, this sort of sackcloth or something over his head, and he was taken. Then Habona, one of the eunuchs attending the king, said, a pole reaching to a height of 50 cubits stands by Haman's house. That's about 75 feet. He had set it up for Mordecai, who spoke up to help the king. Stir the pot, stir the pot, stir the pot. The king said, impale him on it. And so they impaled him and on the pole he had set up for Mordecai. And then the king's fury subsided. Wow, can you imagine that? 
what a, not a very nice king, but what a not a nice right-hand man. Okay, so what can we learn from this? It's quite an intense story, isn't it? So here we see a young woman who faced her fears and did something afraid, even though she was afraid she did it anyway. We all experience fear from time to time, but don't let it hold us back. If there is a task God is calling us to, but fear is holding us back, let's realize and remind ourselves that God is greater than all of our fears and recognize why we are afraid of something, commit that fear to God, and realize that if God has called you to take a task on, he will help you accomplish it. When we face our fears, let's or do something even when it's frightening or intimidating, we always move forward and become a bit braver and a little bit more confident in other things as we kind of conquer those fears along life's journey. The story of Esther teaches us not to fear, that God is watching over us, even when he seems hidden afar, but he is always there. And that is something we really notice in the pages of this story. Like God isn't mentioned, but he is like all over it, isn't he? And in Isaiah 41, verse 10, it says, So do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And that is a wonderful verse to pin on our fridge, to you know, stick it on the back of our diary, to remind us each day that we are not alone. God is with us. He will strengthen us for all of those things that we have to move into as the week unfolds. Fear is only temporary, but regrets can last a lifetime. And that is so true, isn't it? Sometimes we can go through our lives and we look back and we think, oh, I wish I'd said that. I wish I'd had that conversation. I wish I'd embarked on that project. I wish I'd done this. I wish I'd done that. And fear has held us back. And then we regret not doing those things. Esther did not regret what she did because she knew God was with her and she had to do something, even though it was a frightening task. The story of Esther is celebrated and it is commemorated and it is remembered every year, even up until this day. And it is a festival that the Jews celebrate called Purim. And they remember this every year from um, celebrating, they give gifts, they give gifts of money, they help the poor. And in Jewish bakeries, there are these like little triangular pastries filled with like dried fruits and poppy seeds and nuts. And some people say it reminds them, it's, to, it's like Haman's ears, because apparently he had his ears cut off before they impaled him, just to add to the fun. Or sometimes they say they reminiscent of Haman's pockets because he was obviously a greedy person and taking things for himself. And these are called Ham and Tashin. Let's say that together. Ham and Tashin. So if ever you're in, Jew, um, in uh, Israel or Jerusalem, around the time of Purim, which is in March, you will find these lovely little delicacies in the bakeries there. Okay, so the Jewish culture love to party. They've got lots of feasts and lots to celebrate and lots to remember. And that's why they have so many feasts and festivals throughout the year. We went to Israel many years ago now. 
And they're either just finishing a feast or planning for the next one or in the middle of a feast. And so they really do love to party because they have a lot to thank God for and to celebrate for what God has done for their nation, for the people. And ultimately, I know we celebrate Easter and Christmas. They're our big Christian sort of celebrations. But we have a lot to be thankful for. We can remember every day all the goodness of God in our lives. I loved how Simon's kid spot last week where he visually showed the sort of difference between before we come to know Jesus with that sort of stained white t-shirt with all the marks on and the difference from when we've come to know Jesus and been forgiven for the things we've done wrong and given our lives to him and he put on one of the children, or was it an adult, I can't remember, this beautiful white brand new Daz washed, aerial washed, whatever your preference is, this beautiful white t-shirt without any stain or blemish and that really reminds us of what Jesus has done for us. So Sarah said this morning, he takes all of those things in our lives away when we come to him, when we trust him, when we invite him into our lives and we realize the work, all these thousands of years and all these stories and how they're all connected, that ultimately God brought to plan his ultimate plan that we can be saved, we can be put right with God, we can know God, we become into the family of God, we become brothers and sisters of Jesus, we become you know, a family together and we have so much to be thankful and grateful for. Every day I do not take for granted my relationship with God. The fact that I can turn to him for anything and that he listens. I know he listens and I can trust him with my life. There are times when I get frustrated like we all do when we don't know what's going on or whether things that we don't understand or we get a little bit impatient when there are prayers still to be answered. But I know that I'm never alone and I know I do not need to fear in this life and neither do you. When we reflect on the character of Esther and her strength, part of being strong and of good courage means trusting in God as our true source of strength. It's not about us trying to muster up this strength. Got to be strong, got to be strong, got to do this, got to do that in my own strength. It's not about us, it's about our dependency on him, that he lives in us, that through the Holy Spirit he can give us the opportunities and the equipment to face those things that we would normally, ordinarily really struggle with. We don't have all the answers for the challenges that lie before us, but we have to move forward with faith. And in the Bible, courage is also called good cheer. The Greek word translated means boldness and confidence, which is the opposite of fear. And in Proverbs, it says, the wicked flee, though no one pursues, but the righteous are as bold as a lion. For the Lord will be at your side and will keep your foot from being snared. The Lord will be your confidence, in other words. And I just want to speak to the young people, especially at this moment. In life, try not to rush things. Try not to compare yourself with others. People who are down the road of life, don't compare yourself. Don't think, I want to be where they are, but, you know, next year, when maybe that person has been plowing in this job or this career or this ministry or these relationships for like 20, 30, 40 years. Don't compare yourself to others. Know that God has a unique plan for you. You may get frustrated because you're not in your dream job, living in your dream place, in the dream relationships you have asked for, thought of, and prayed for, but don't get frustrated because God has got a unique plan for you. Nothing is wasted. Nothing is wasted in life. Each phase, each decision, our experience can all lead into the next opportunity of things. 
So we may never need to risk our lives for anything like Esther. We may never need to stand before a king and risk our necks. We may never need to save a nation or prevent genocide, but we are faced with something every day of our lives, something challenging, something difficult, something frightening. Remember Esther when you come into those situations. And I want to encourage us to be bold, courageous, brave, and have good cheer because we are not alone and God is with us, just like he was with Esther. So for such a time as this, we are all alive today. (sighs) Breathing. (sighs) We're all breathing. We are all here. We are all present. We are here for such a time as this. We are alive in this year. We are alive in this generation. We are in this job. We are in this church. We are in the relationships that we are in. And where are you? So find your place. Remind yourself of your calling. Use the gifts where you are now. Nothing is wasted. Don't just wait for the next 25 years because that 25 years is a long time and everything's connected, nothing is wasted and each thing moves into the next presenting its own opportunities. And as we were praying this morning, and I think it ties into this, I had a picture of a tin of rusty nails and screws and you know when you've like left something out in the rain or they've been a bit wet and they're in a drawer for years, they get really rusty, don't they? And they're unusable. And then I could see these like rusty nails and hooks and eyes and nails and things like that, like in a can of coke or in some sort of other metal stripper or cleaner. And they came out gleaming silver, ready for use. And sometimes in our lives, we know there are gifts that God has given us. And sometimes, even maybe through two years of COVID, we've just let those things get a bit rusty. But I just want to encourage you today, as you come before God, you say, you know, clean me up, get the rust off and use me and, you know, encourage me in the gifts that you have given me to kind of fulfill the purposes and the call that you have put in my life for such a time as this, wherever I am placed, help me to bloom where I'm planted right now for your kingdom purposes. So if that's for you today, just weigh that up, pray about it. Think of those things we may have put on our back burners. Think of those things we knew we used to do and we used to quite enjoy, we were quite good at, and God really helped us and anointed us in those things, but we've kind of like let them get a bit rusty. I want to encourage you, maybe it's a time to go into that drawer, get out those rusty nails, clean them down and use them again. Or maybe it's a time and a season where those things we've just forgotten about or not invested in is time to bring before God and ask for his wisdom and timing so that these things can be used for his glory. Amen.